0: You're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed for equity and inclusion, working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. Hi everyone, I am so, so, so excited for today. I am Sable Lomax. Pronouns are she and her. I am the Chief Relationships Officer at Fearless Futures, and I'm so very excited to kick off Season 2 of the Fearless Futures Podcast with Lauren Vaughn Stackelberg. So first thing first, if you have not engaged with Season 1, you can hear it on Apple or Spotify. Season 2, here we go, folks. I have my talk show cards, even though this is podcast. <laughs> so Lauren Von Stackelberg is the entrepreneurial equity, diversity and inclusion leader, founder and charity board chair with experience across six continents in consumer technology, travel and financial services. She is one of the youngest women to join the C-suite of a FTSC 250 company. Lauren is Tate & Lyle's first Chief Equity Diversity and Inclusion Officer. So excited when I learned about that. And prior to this, Lauren was Expedient Group's first Global Head of Inclusion and Diversity and J.P. Morgan's first and founding Head of Client Diversity Strategy. She founded Collaborative Network and movements to drive progress and change at an industry level in both finance and travel. Lauren is the founder of a micro fund in Ghana and trustee of Founder for Schools, who I know, knew about. And then when I saw this, I was like, why didn't I know this? She is a regular public speaker, avid reader, and force for Social Change, which I can attest to, with recognition from Forbes 30 Under 30, the UK's most influential d leaders, and management today is 35 under 35. Before we dive in to today's topic, I have two questions for you. First question is, so think about your entire inclusion and equity journey. So from the start, whenever that was, till now, what has been your favorite mic drop learning moment?
1: have to give two I know you want one That's I time. At totally me. Fine.
0: Two.
1: so look the the first undoubtedly um is Ghana you know Sable, you talked a bit about um when I started my micro fund there I think that was truly the first time that I understood firsthand the compounding systems of oppression hmm. and the impact of that because I was able to experience firsthand and we were very much focused on women mm-hmm. in that context, but then you could see the compounding impacts of race and class and gender and all of those pieces um, showing up in that context. And so for me, it was the first time I think I saw the systems at play hmm. um, really truly in my work. The second one, it's Fearless Futures. Right? I'm not saying it because I'm on your podcast. Um, genuinely, I was always acting in service of equity, but I hadn't really identified it as my career, my work, my calling. And the moment that my soul kind of made that kindred connection was actually through Fearless Futures and some of your early training. And when it was set up, it really helped me understand the kind of mindset, the requirements and what it takes to do this work. And I felt Called into it, prepared to do it, and was prepared to do it at scale because microfund, you know, you might reach twenty yeah. people through circle lending in the course of the, a few months or a year. But then I went into you know two hundred and fifty thousand person organizations. so really felt called to do it at a higher and a, and a bigger level through uh, through you all.
0: I love that you're already breaking rules in your anecdotes and in the question responses. So this is this is going to be great. Next <laughs> question of all the things that you have learned throughout your inclusion journey so far, what's one area or one muscle in particular that you're like, I still need to strengthen or I just want to? You don't necessarily have to be committed to it this year, but you're like, this is a topic area, this is a place where it's like, I need to pump up my muscle just a little bit.
1: Yeah, look, it's not a small answer. The answer is transformative justice. I think really thinking through the the kind of framework, right, Mm -hmm. of um, harm reduction, of violence reduction, about abuse, um, without actually creating more harm um, or unintentional in in that process. Um, And I think about that a lot through kind of the lens, right, the intersection of capitalism and equity, diversity and inclusion. But I think that's something that I will constantly be reading and working toward. I don't know that it's uh, time bound mm. to a year, but certainly a muscle I'm constantly building.
0: Yeah, I don't think we can time bound transformative justice. I mean, we can try, right. but I don't. I don't think that's a good idea. If we want to, you know, set ourselves up for success, we might end up in tears on December thirty first versus like trying to celebrate <laughs> the new year. Um, but speak, you just mentioned reading. I know you're an avid reader. I'm an avid reader. You can kind of see just a fraction of books behind me. This house is full of them. I told myself I need to use my Kindle because there's truly nowhere else for them to go unless I get a larger place, which is just not in the plans anytime soon. And I bring this up because in the you know late spring of 2020, with the murder of George Floyd, we saw loads and loads of white people buying books, you know, anti-racism books. The white for, you know I mean, just books and books. And there was lists of all the books you should read if you want to make a change and make a difference. And not just buying the books, but we needed to buy the books from small businesses, local bookstores, um, black-owned bookshops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then, as many of us have come to realize. I'm not sure if folks have read the books, or if they have read the books, I'm not sure if folks have sat with the book and really digested, you know, what the different books were about, because there's a litany of books, I'm not going to name them all. I say all that to say, as an avid reader, as someone who's committed to this work, what's a book or two, because I know you, you know, you're like, one, that's not enough, I have two What's a book or two books that have really changed the way that you've done this work or even think about doing this work when it comes to all things inclusion and equity in the workplace? Yeah,
1: and look, I want to talk quickly about reading before I just throw a book recommendation, but I get asked a lot right like why do you read why do you share these reading lists where do you find the time mm-hmm. um and you have to make the time in this work because i cannot and will never hold all of the identities that i serve yeah and so for me right reading is a way of replacing that unpaid emotional labor of going to people and asking them to kind of relive their trauma or inform me of their story or gain their perspective people have done this authors have voluntarily done this in their books <sighs> Right. And you can pay them for it through buying their book. And so I think for me, it's less about it's not information gathering. It's not a chore. Right. It's really gaining and holding empathy, gaining perspective, accelerating empathy. And so I, I really think books, if you're open to it and you're committed, they can call you into change making, growth, self-reflection. I said change making first because we're talking about action. Yeah. Right. So in that real transformation within ourselves, within the world. Um, and so look, that that's why I'm a bibliophile. That's how books kind of serve me mm-hmm. and support the journey. Um, there's hundreds that led me to go there's differently. So I know you want to, you want to. Um, but I would say, if I talk really recently, I think Michelle Mi-Jung Kim's book, The Wake Up, ah. was incredibly, incredibly impactful. I think it's a great lens into equity, diversity, inclusion work. I think it marries up really well with a lot of bell hooks writing, which I just put everything (laughs) written there in my list Mm -hmm. and talks about love Mm -hmm. and really goes into some of the things that people don't explore when they think about this work in a corporate or a work context. Mm -hmm. um, That's really important. And then, you know, one of the other ones I'd talk about is the purpose of power, Mm -hmm. which I think the underlying subtitle is kind of how we come together when we fall apart. And it's really about building transformative movements and coalition building. It's from one of the co-creators and leaders of Black Lives Matter. And it really, I think, challenges what people thought, how to make a hashtag, how to make this, to actually what is coalition building? What is transformational um, movement building? So those are just two that I would draw our attention to.
0: I know you could name so many, which is why I said, I know one's not fair, but I don't want this to turn into, here's another book list. and I love, I just love how you started with this is a way of not asking someone that I know and you know my personal life or a colleague to engage in unpaid labor. I someone actually labored and wrote this book, and I can actually pay for their labor by not just purchasing but reading it. And I, I just love that you drew that drew that connection. And you mentioned action, and I know in this space, um, This happens to you and your work, and it certainly happens to us. We spend loads of time talking with leaders. Um, You know, whatever vertical function they might work in, you know, at their respective places, we talk to leaders all the time. We also talk to leaders who specifically do inclusion and equity work. And there's this pressure to do, you know, it's like, I want to take action, I want to do something. And this desire isn't often matched with. I'm just going to say strategy and and thoughtful strategy at that. But, you know, it's, it's human nature to learn something and go, oh, my God, we need to fix this. We have to do something. And just to, like, jump into action. So as a leader in this space and you've been a leader in this space for some time, how do you how do you deal with excited folks? And the energy is there, but going, hold on, we can't just jump into the deep end. We actually need to do just a little bit of planning first and be strategic and really thoughtful about it to make sure we're getting the impact that we want for those who are marginalized.
1: It depends on the company context, the point in the maturity curve and the leaders. Mm. And so for me, the risk that you have is that you undertake performative action versus making lasting change because you want to be seen to be doing something rather than the right thing. Yeah. Um, I think you see this a lot in public companies because they have quarterly results, they have annual reports, they have these deadlines imposed on them by others that they try to fit pieces like this into. And also I think you see this because people, particularly leaders, think about their tenure. Not good leaders, but some leaders. And so they think about what can I achieve in my role rather than what legacy am I leaving Mm -hmm. for the future generations, for the future of this company? And if they were thinking about legacy, they wouldn't think time bound about, well, what is the to-do list in two years that's going to make me look good or get me my next role? It's This could be a 10-year journey with milestones at two and five and seven and 10 years. And this the commitments to sustainability, to equity, diversity, and inclusion need to outlive a leader's tenure often. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a challenging place of friction mm. for a lot of leaders mm-hmm. to feel they're in a relay race and they're passing the baton as opposed to kind of finishing something and seeing it through, going into like, what do I do about it? I think the most important thing is, you can't have people feel like they're waiting for you, the equity, diversity, and inclusion team to make a strategy. They should be co-conspirators, co-constructors from the start. Mm -hmm. And so if they feel that they don't have action to take, or they need quick action, the action is engaging in the strategy, doing the work, learning, participating, and actually, the more that everybody in the company is reflected in the strategy, the better it is, because that's who it's serving and that's who it's in service of. And so in, in my view, that's one way to manage it. Mm-hmm. Second way is we try to host a lot of virtual open spaces.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So also having a space to acknowledge this tension and let people ask, why didn't you post on social media? Why didn't you say something? You know, I want you to do this and to talk through. Here's where our strategy is. Here's what how we thought about that. And here's why we decided we didn't deserve to say something. So rather than allowing there to be these unsaid assumptions of something has happened, the company doesn't care. That's what leaders fear. Having a safe space to say, we'll talk you exactly through why we didn't deserve to participate in that moment or in that conversation and what we're doing to get to a place where we, where our voice matters in this conversation and where we'll drive, drive change.
0: Is something... Interesting that I want to tease out that you just shared, which kind of ties into the next question I planned anyway. But this idea of reconciling the desire to do with the need for a thoughtful strategy with what if we're on the flip side and, you know, someone says there's this 10 year journey and the people who are marginalized are like but we've been ready for progress for 30 years 40 years 100 years 400 years 400. on the group and it's like so how do we manage and reconcile this tension of i didn't ask you to act that fast and and unthoughtfully with i also don't need you to take 10 years to make progress because folks have been ready for progress now and like you know just figuring out where where is that middle ground Does one exist. And how do you manage that? Or how have you seen it done?
1: Look, the best way to do it is you can hold hypotheses, but a strategy can only be created and enacted through deep listening and active listening around the world. And so it's centering the voices of those people and listening to not just the complaint of, I needed it sooner, or this is the timeline, or this is my experience, but also what do they need, right? What would feel good to them, and what is it that What's doing harm in the ways that we have historically done things and that we currently do things and what feels most urgent in their experience of of our workplace and of our communities or of what we're doing? And I think the more that you are able to center those voices and have people feel that they're seen, heard and valued in the strategy development and that what they are saying will have a direct action, right? And a change and an input in the strategy makes a really, really big difference. The other piece of feedback, and you alluded to this, saying 30 years, 400 years, 20 years, it has to be locally resonant. Too many people make a global strategy, a strategy from headquarters, they make a colonial export from the UK or the US to the rest of the world. This will be your inclusion strategy. And it doesn't fit actually what the experience of people is, what the historical context is, um, what the reality of the political environment is on the ground and people's safety. And so a lot of that is actually being prepared to have a global strategy and then do local action planning in every community. That could be different for a rural area or a city, each country, and understanding with cross-cultural competency, different places are at different phases in the maturity curve. And we don't just have one strategy. I think there's a component of you can inform, you can educate, you can influence, you can give people the tools, but somebody will only change if they want to right? They need to be prepared to step into the work themselves. And it's very hard if you're doing EDI and i work and you're doing it with the outcome or the goal of changing someone and they're not changing to feel like you're failing or you're not delivering. And so I think change your frame of reference to say, you know, I can identify who these people are. I can have deep conversations. I can listen to and hold empathy for their perspective and why they're saying that. And then I can really have a deeper conversation, but I might not change their mind. And that is okay. You will not change everybody's mind, um, but you can have a conversation that, you know, goes to helping them unlock, unleash um, a new way of thinking, a new perspective. And the fact that they're willing to engage with you on it is is a step forward. And I think that's, that's probably yeah. the way to think
0: about it. I love that. One of my favorite professors at Temple, Um, Dr. Peterson Lewis, she always said in different moments, you don't, the goal is not to change someone's mind. You cannot do that. Like you said, Lauren, someone's not ready to change until they're ready to change. The goal is to educate, share information and create space in which folks can ask questions and you answer. You also can't rush someone's learning journey. So just because they might not have gotten it in that moment or even a year later, doesn't mean that the aha moments aren't going to come later. It can be very frustrating if you're in the education teacher seat, so to speak. It's like, why aren't you getting it? But we have to sit with, we all learn at different speeds and sometimes it takes us different time, but you're sowing the seed. So the goal isn't to change the mind. The goal is to sow the seed with information, with conversation, with dialogue, with space hoping that as things continue to happen in their lives and that sea gets watered, they'll have that aha moment sooner or later.
1: We have a number of strategies and some of those might be prepared to move faster and others might need some more work and, and thinking. But in my view, without doing that local piece, which a lot of companies skip because it goes in the too complicated box, we just need one strategy and we need to do it. People will disengage because they won't see themselves in your agenda and they won't see their needs reflected in an authentic in an authentic and culturally appropriate way.
0: I love that you shared this idea of bringing folks in in the creation of the strategy whatever the strategy might end up being in the end but also there being this overarching co- company strategy and then need, needing that to be localized to the various geographies in which that strategy would be implemented. So in the midst of, I'm gonna take a, this might be step one, I'm not actually counting here, but um, let's just do process, right? And I'm not gonna order these steps because knowing me that I won't use the right numbers. Um, But in the, in the spirit of, and with the goal to, incorporate the voices and prioritizing the voices of marginalized folks in the development of these strategies what are ways that you have seen that voice be collected you know so there's employee surveys there's all sorts of things but what are some useful ways and helpful ways you have seen like i want to hear from you I'm not gonna tell you what I think you need. I want you to share whatever, you know, that might be, whatever context that might look in, but what are ways you have seen that be be useful, productive, and you get get the response that you need from them?
1: One is to the extent that it is psychologically and physically safe to do so, Hmm. listening in person is critical. Mm -hmm. There is something about building trust when you are a new person, when maybe equity, diversity, and inclusion is new for the organization, That just because you ask once doesn't mean someone's gonna trust you with their trauma or their experience. And they may have had experience of having told people and waved flag after flag after flag with no action and no response. And you have to be prepared to acknowledge and hold that to be their reality and earn their trust, Mm -hmm. which you can't do with a survey or one conversation. So I think listening, showing up in person, and just creating open, safe spaces, starting the conversations talking about psychological safety confidentiality, explaining the intentions of the space that you're creating so that people understand you're not going away to say, Sable told me this. You're trying to look for trends and you know solve problems because people are fearful of that. Yeah. Um, I think for surveys, what I've found to be helpful is a few things. So first of all, if you're gonna ask a question, you need to have accountable owners for the outcome. And actions and budget to go and take it because it's very hollow. If you tell people, I want you to be heard, you ask them a question, they really genuinely share what they think, and next year they get the same question and nothing has changed, like the trust is broken and it cannot be repaired, they probably won't stay at your company. Mm. So I think for me, it's the accountability piece. Then Mm -hmm. there's delineating your results by identity. Do not look at things in the aggregate, right? So it's very easy to say, great. All of our people feel, you know, we get a score of 80 out of 100 on mental health and well-being. Go us. Then you look and you say, wow, Black women have a score of 62. What is the disparity of this 18 points within our company? And what are we doing to cause this experience? And you have to look and say, actually, this particular generation within Asia is having a much more disproportionately bad experience of this. So my understanding is Managers and leaders like numbers to go up. Yeah. So their goal is it's 80. Let's get to 85 and we'll win. The answer is winning is parity amongst all delineated groups.
0: That's, a, I just want you to say that one more time because that, I need to hear that again. Go ahead.
1: Winning in employee engagement surveys is parity among all delineated identity groups, all marginalized folks. It is not increasing your score by two points or five points. Um, and I think people fundamentally misunderstand that mm. and set goals that then don't serve mm. the the voices that are least amplified or heard because they get absconded by the majority, mm. right? And they get hidden. And then a couple other things, because I care passionately about listening. If you're going to ask a question, free text always. Mm. Allow someone to explain themselves and their interpretation of the question that you've asked and to give you reasons so that you can understand what people's experiences, every language, every native language that someone speaks needs to be available to them for commenting and for questions. You should not be asking somebody to share something so candid and personal in a language that you know is your preference and not theirs. And then don't forget the folks who are hourly, who are in manufacturing plants, who are in shift work. They don't sit at a computer all day. They may not have digital access. When they do, someone might be behind them waiting for the computer and that's not a private environment. And so think about QR codes, think about mobile, put iPads places that people can use them. Really think about who are we not hearing from and what barriers, physical barriers, are we creating to them not being heard and fix that. Because if the more voices you lack, you're not getting a real outcome of your survey.
0: Where have you seen surveys done really well Including all of the things that you just mentioned that folks should be taking into consideration in the development and the execution of the survey, as well as the accountability with the results afterwards. Like, where have you seen this done well?
1: It's it's an interesting question. I think provider-wise, right? Mm -hmm. I I actually think Glint has been strengthened enormously through their partnership with LinkedIn in terms of being able to access languages, being able to allow comments and aggregate comments through languages and the tie-in to LinkedIn learning. Mm -hmm. So as managers have learnings about your team feels this is an area of development for you, it will then recommend these are two or three courses or videos that you could engage with That will help you understand right this and where you're lacking and building so i would say glint but most of these platforms you get out of it what you put in so you have to have a team doing this architecture work to really think through which questions are we asking which demographic data points are we collecting what are our thresholds to make sure of you know anonymity and confidentiality how do we delineate the results share that back who's accountable Mm -hmm. and the last thing that really works, and I've, I've seen many companies do this, um, a lot of big, you know, Microsoft does this and others. It's important to also ask if there's a skill set you're building, let's say you're teaching allyship in your organization, use the survey to see if the skill you're building is showing up in practice, right? So in, in Deloitte, they have a publication, State of Inclusion, and they basically talk about, like, if you ask people, 92% of them say they're an ally. 73% oh, yeah, sure. talk about bias at work, but 29% actually speak up and a third totally ignore it. And yeah. so what you have to test out in your survey is something like asking, you know, I believe when I witness or experience um, bias or discrimination, you know, that, that someone will speak up and then look and you will easily see, okay, folks who are identifying as people with disabilities or You know, these certain groups of people are disproportionately not experiencing allyship in the way we're teaching it. And white women are. And I've made that up as an example, but Mm -hmm. that helps you to shift your learning and your training and to hold people accountable to say, you're not applying this equitably Mm -hmm. in practice, in the workplace, and we have to shift what we're building.
0: I love that because when I think about employee surveys in general, I have mixed views all of us at Fearless Futures have had mixed mixed views and still hold mixed views about employee surveys. And not to say that they should not be done, but much like you've mentioned, if we are going to use them as a piece to our strategy, we need to be extremely thoughtful and precise and strategic with what we're putting in our surveys, what we're trying to measure, and then what we find, whatever the results might be, how are we going to hold ourselves accountable so those who aren't experiencing, you know, those who aren't in that 80% or that 70%, we're not saying, well, look, we we rose 5% since the last quarter, the last year. We're taking into account the 15 or the 30% who might not be having that experience. So, you know, it's not to say, then, employee surveys from use. it's like, no, we can use them, but let's let's not just use them for the sake of using them. There's some power that can you know that we can get from there, but we we need to be thoughtful about that. We're still talking about employees. We're still talking about experiences. In the land of engagement, let's talk about employee resource groups, which can be called affinity groups. They have different names, you know, depending on the company or organization. And there's something that's another area that we have mixed views about. I personally, but also those of us at Fearless Futures, particularly when it comes to building equity and inclusion in a workplace at the structural level. Um, so, in that grain, what could make these groups more impactful with the idea that we actually want to have an inclusive, an equitable workplace, what would need to be done for ERGs to be impactful in that way? And to not to be seen as, you know, an area where sometimes we're falling short.
1: One last thing on survey, before <laughs> I jump into that question, um, that was just a, a lingering thought um, that, Ooh, that I'm it. having in my brain. I think it's important to ask in your survey, something along the lines of, I have confidence that action will be taken as a result of this survey or as a result or you know when I share ideas in this survey, I feel heard, get a sense of the trust that you already have <laughs> before you go forward and that and if you need a proof point to make people accountable, that score is always going to be pretty low right that's why you're doing a survey um, employee resource groups totally agree with you we've had a lot of conversations with fearless futures about how to make sure that these groups are effective. I think that The challenge has been that they are seen sometimes as social clubs rather than really strategic groups, right, that are holding um, a lot of useful and important knowledge and business information and and growth. And so I'm just going to go through a small list of things in my brain that I think are needed. The challenge I see is they lack intersectionality. By nature, groups tend to be formed around one-dimensional components when human beings are not one-dimensional. And so people struggle to say, okay, well, I go to the Black employee network and the women's network and the abilities network and this network, and I may hold all three of those identities, but actually there's a lot of burden for me to now be part of three groups and go to three meetings and do this work. And so I think in that, it, it can be more impactful to give a shared budget to all of the groups together. And mm. PwC did this, but it's actually saying instead of there's inequity and in, well, which group gets what and who gets more, you say to them as a collective, you work together and decide. And it might be that for Martin Luther King Day and a day of service, the choice is to collaborate with the Happy Healthy Minds Network and to think about you know, mental health and well-being um, in, in conjunction with the Black experience in America and to fund that together. But I think intersectionality and budget, which... Budget they need to begin with as table stakes um, really helps them to kind of work together and to have transparency and visibility into what each other are doing and the kind of how we're paying speakers fairly and pieces like that. There has to be dedicated time and recognition for the people leading the group's labor. It is not another job, it is not a volunteering effort, it is not philanthropic, right? They're there at work at your company or your charity doing this in their work time. And so you need to integrate it in whether you give them a financial stipend, a percentage of their bonus, a percentage of their paid time. It needs to be in their performance review. Their managers need to be aware of the strategic importance of this at an executive level into the business. And then the last two thoughts I have, one is not every space is a public forum. A lot of ERGs, it's like you have to host an event for Black History Month because it's your month. And so you have the event and I will come and learn. And actually some of these groups just exist for solidarity and community. And in that Mm -hmm. case might not want the white gaze. They might just want to be together to mourn and experience something that's happened, not to educate people, not to host an event, not to change a policy. And you have to hold space for that to also be true of these groups.
0: Right, Mm -hmm. they can
1: be both things, they aren't always working and delivering for you, they're also taking care of each other. And the last thing is allow and trust them to inform policy. Most important thing for employee resource groups if you're going to make right now, we're making a domestic violence and abuse policy. Our professional women's network in Latin America, in the US, in the UK is deeply involved in that process. Menopause, perimenopause, the same. Equal Parental Leave, our LGBTQ plus network is deeply involved. Compassionate Leave, looking at the abilities group being really involved. These groups can center their own community's voices, right? And the institutional benefits that you're creating and not asking them is offensive. It's a complete waste of their their resource. That's the resource in the resource group.
0: (laughs) I love that you started with just how are these groups resourced? because I know that a lot of places, it will be simply by how many folks are in the group itself and how that could automatically lead to, well, we're not going to be resourced equitably if the women's group has 600 members, but the group for Indigenous folks only has 15, and that's how the budget is allocated. So I love the list. I know I said you didn't have to take notes, but I think if if I were listening that was something that I would have written down because like I said it's not that employee resource groups much like surveys it's not that they're useless they have and can bring such rich valuable insight and experience for you know the organization and for those in the groups but if we're going to have them if we're going to use them let's make sure that we're taking into consideration the realities of marginalized folks and what they're experiencing, not just outside, but in the workplace. And what does that mean if we're going to have diversity, you know, inclusion, and equity statements on our websites, you know, and, and things of that nature. Okay. Okay. Oh God, Lauren, I love talking to you. We mentioned earlier leaders wanting to do And I think it was you who said, it wasn't me, that, you know, sometimes something might happen externally and you want to do something just for the sake of doing anything. You know, so that that thoughtful strategy that we've been we've been discussing is just not part of the equation. And when I, you know, we think about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, Amir Locke was just murdered in his home a a couple of days ago. Like there's so many names we can list in terms of police murders, but this idea of just doing something, taking action, although it's reactive, to absolve ourselves of not doing anything beforehand. So it's like something happens externally. Doesn't have to be a murder, but something happens externally. And now company must do something. We gotta do any, you know, we just we just gotta do and we gotta do it now. Quick wins, quick wins. You know, I hear that all the time talking to folks. Low hanging fruit. fruit?" Yes, they're like, Well, we'll," thank you, Laura. If it's not a quick win, it's like, well, what's a low-hanging fruit? And we can knock this out the park in the next seven business days. And you know, you're sitting there and you're like, Huh, interesting. What does it take to have to shift perspective almost for our leaders, our stakeholders, and those leaders who are responsible for all things DEI, to move into a space of being proactive and continuously being proactive and not waiting to something happens externally or internally to say we must do something. And to move away from the space of quick wins and low hanging fruit. Like, what does it take to build sustainable proactivity in this space amongst leaders?
1: Saving the small questions for me, I see. So, so look, (laughs) I think the most important thing there is one thing you should always be doing reactively that companies forget, and that is centering care for your most impacted folks. Everybody rushes into our company. How it's perceived, what we'll do, what we'll say, how we'll show up on social media, what charity can we donate to? What about the people who are sitting at their desks, who don't want to be at work right now, who have just experienced this trauma live? What are you doing to take care of them? You literally owe them that. And so to me, the first and most reactive and low-hanging fruit, whatever you want to call it, is writing to these people, reaching out to them, bear witness to the trauma acknowledge the pain and implore them to do what they need. Tell them to take leave, give them flexibility, explain the resources through mental health services that you have available at your company. You know, give employee resource groups spaces and budget if they need to host something or to have a session in that topic. But that is the first and quickest thing that you should do and you can do to respond. After that, what you should not do is start authoring social media posts. This is everyone's favorite thing. What will we say? Let's say and then let's do. You shouldn't say absolutely anything. You don't deserve the microphone if you don't have proof points and action points of what you've been doing up to that point. And so do not go and make social media posts. We've all seen the companies do it. And if you're gonna make one, your social media posts should say, we have nothing to say. And we're really embarrassed and ashamed and disappointed And we're going away to do the work and we'll come back in this time frame and give you an update on the actions, the anti-racist actions or the anti-ableist actions, whatever it is that you're going to take forward from that space. I think, you know, the the other piece that is super important is something that happens a lot with stories in the news is it starts Mm. to be a leader called it whack-a-mole to me. And it made okay, a lot of sense. Probably. It's kind of the game where the little moles pop up and then you you hit them <laughs> with a thing. And it's like, you cannot allow your company as you wouldn't on any other business objective to have something pop up and say, oh, okay, now it's gender. Oh, it's race. Oh, it's disability. Because they are interconnected systems. And so you can't play oppression Olympics and have people in the company think, when is my identity Going to be on the league table. When is it my turn? This is happening. And no one said anything, but that happened and someone said something. So if you are reactive, you are intuitively missing, you're only reacting to what you see in your news. (laughs) And we're all in echo chambers. And so you have to think about who are you missing? What are you not reacting to? What are you not responding to? And that's why you have a strategy because there's more happening than just the main headline every single day, mm-hmm. not to diminish any of the headlines, they're important, but there are also communities that don't get the headlines yeah. and that don't have the stories told. So you can't just respond. And then, you know, the the last thing I'd say with leaders is just reminding them, it's not new news. Like I spend a lot of time and Fearless Futures does this well, going back and saying like, this might feel like a new problem. It's 400 years old really and responding like it's new. Yeah, and responding like it's brand new and that suddenly we need to fix it. You're actually erasing and denying the system's existence and the people's experiences within it because you're just pretending that it didn't exist until the moment that you became aware of it and that that's when the system, you know, started. And actually, it's an easy solve. Yeah,
0: and and that erasure increases the harm. So it's already this traumatic experience and then you're pretending it's a new experience. And then the questions that come and the, the dialogue that takes place, it, it's just harm after harm and, and someone has to pitch and someone has to present. I, I love that idea of beginning with, with care. Like that actually is something that you can do. Be strategic about that though. Being on the receiving oh, end yeah. of a bunch of emails and things can also not be helpful, but that's not why we're here today. Another quick, I'm not gonna say a quick win, But one thing that I've noticed in particular and that other folks that I, you know, chat with have noticed is all these creation of um, the creation of all these chief diversity uh, equity roles. You know, and the title changes, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, inclusion and equity, equity and inclusion, or is inclusion and belonging. You know, there's, there's all these different names and. As someone who's had this role pre Black um, Black Lives Matter uprising, with all that happened in twenty twenty, what do you view as like the need for this role? Like, what what is the purpose for this role, and what is it not?
1: <laughs> all right, let me defend my job. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh,
0: I I think.
1: You know, first and foremost, if you just look at like the the S&P 500, so the kind of 500 biggest companies broadly in the U.S., 65%, I think, is the number of chief diversity officers in those companies were appointed or promoted into the role in the last one to three years. So I just Mm -hmm. want to give you a number to understand the scale, right, of actually what Sable's talking about. It's not that you think they're popping up. It's an enormous trend. My main Mm -hmm. thought is there's the role, And there's the person who does it. And so if you're given,
0: (laughs) you you want to pause there? No, it was my church hand, you know, waving fingers in agreement. (laughs) Continue. All right. And the reason I say that, right, is if you're given
1: the right resources, the platform, the power, the budget to enact change within an organization, having a chief diversity officer can be really valuable, right? It's going to keep it on the executive agenda, on the board leadership agenda, it's bringing an equity lens to a lot of conversations across the business. Um, It's someone who's constantly agitating and kind of thinking about harm reduction, um, reparations for harm that's been done. It's it's a different lens than a lot of people already hold. And I think it also keeps you tethered to other organizations that do equity, diversity, inclusion work. So that you can collaborate and go further faster all your other functions that's not the case they're competing finance doesn't want to ask the cfo of the other company about their balance sheet or you know some trade secret but on this we can say wow we did this wrong and it did a lot of harm who has done this better and that we can learn from so i think that's a really really important one Mm -hmm. i mean i just want to say you know i love to quote angela davis why not But I think if you're a chief diversity officer, you basically have to act like it's possible to radically transform the world all the time, (laughs) right? Every meeting you're in, every time. Then I'm going to chat about problems, two problems, (laughs) right? Companies are giving people this title as a bolt-on. They have a flawed hiring process because they have no idea what this job does. So there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of people that haven't been able to do this work that are suddenly interviewing someone to determine how they're going to do it. That doesn't make sense. And so you have people hired in, and there's no expectations for like what does this role deliver? What role do they play in the leadership team? What power in, you know what, what do they wield in this wheelhouse of information? And I think you need to rely on external consultants and headhunters and other people to help you bring in to that point on right person, the right person um, and the right skill set. And I think to the point around, you know, right skill set as well doing your homework and getting advice on like, what is required of this role for someone to be successful, because you want them to be set up to succeed. If you're making this hire, nobody wants to invest in a hiring process and not have a good outcome. And then, you know, the last two things it's not, which is really important, my view, it's not absolution. Having a chief Mm. diversity officer is a milestone, it's not a destination right? You don't win because you've hired a chief diversity officer. You just have someone that is going to help you steward and shepherd equitable outcomes and inclusive culture, but that's also done through a collective effort. They can't do it alone. And so the company has to be ready. You know, I don't chief diversity officers don't own any processes end to end. They partner and they work with legal, with HR, with, um, accessible technology. And so you need those partnerships to be aligned and people to be prioritizing this to get the work done. It's not a job that you can do as an individual contributor. And my last point, it's not HR.
0: (laughs) Although it's often tucked under HR, I do love the waving the flag. It is not HR.
1: Well, I think if you think it's HR, then it shouldn't be a chief diversity officer role because it's couched underneath the person that would be their peer. It is institutionally across the board. It's part of legal, it's part of technology, it's part of marketing, it's part of comms, it's part of customer conversations, sustainability. You cannot, and if you put it in HR and your HR organization is the police, right? People don't trust it, it's protecting the company, it's not protecting the people, it will fail. Guaranteed, Mm -hmm. because it starts from a trust deficit. So you have to know your HR function and keep it far away. If that is actually the truth and you're transforming HR, you will be better served having equity, diversity, and inclusion stand alone to help audit and change HR rather than be part of it and be branded with mm-hmm. the same brush.
0: Because branding, we all know the, the impact of branding. I love how you started with resourcing it properly. And then it was something you just said maybe all of 40 seconds ago with you can't do it alone, because they're major companies and there's it's a three-person team but they have 50,000 employees and just already they're working at a deficit when you really sit down and and anchor yourself in all of the work that has to be done if you're committed to it we have to resource it properly and resource isn't just financial resources. It's staff, it's, you know, material. It's all of the things required to actually get to a place where we can say we are an inclusive organization. We have equity threaded throughout all of our processes, our systems, et cetera, et cetera. And I just really want to what are all the double click, double tap, plus one, you know, all of the things that we say. I really want to do all of those things for this idea of disentangling. When it sits under HR, what are the implications and material consequences of that? You know, when we consider all of the things that you might want to achieve, is that possible? Can you actually reconcile that? Or do we have to sit with the fact that that's actually quite irreconcilable? And what does that then mean? I love that. Okay, there's a question in the chat. But before we get to that question, I want to enter Utopia. It's my favorite place to be especially since COVID is still here with all of the 1,000 strains. And I'm not going to go into that. This is a happy space right now. Lauren, if you were to enter into Utopia, picture it, your favorite weather, your favorite outfit, your hair is cooperating, your skin is dewy, you're hydrated, <laughs> everything is fantastic in the world. And you had the ability to implement any policy that you want from start to finish that would positively transform and impact marginalized folks in the workplace, what would you do? What would it be? I'm not gonna ask you how you do it unless you want to, but definitely what would you do and what would it be? Yes, it's it's
1: funny. I'm laughing at your description of utopia because to me, my utopia is so much inner Rather than outer, it's not my dewy skin or my hair or my weather. It's, That's because it's I've
0: been inside too long. Fulfillment <laughs> and
1: fulfillment and soul and all of that. And um, London is actually, you know, a, a utopia to me. I feel very fortunate every day to to be here. I think the answer. I have so many policies that I would like to implement tomorrow. The one that I have been working on and I think is incredibly important as I've heard from our marginalized folks in workplaces is, I'm using an umbrella term, but I'll explain it, is a concept of compassionate leave. And so it's thinking about, you know, the trauma that marginalized folks have been consistently experiencing is immense. And then you add upon it inequitable health outcomes, higher mortality rates, the pandemic, and you have a group of people who deserve care and compassion in the way that serves them not in the way that a company kind of enacts or decides. And so typically you see companies having two to three day bereavement policies for immediate family members. They want a proof of that relationship. They want a death certificate, right? In my imaginary world of tomorrow, this broader umbrella captures trauma across a lot of categories, right? So it broadens it to bereavement and critical illness, to domestic violence and abuse, pregnancy loss, Embryo loss trans, uh, transplant, and it takes away cissexism and heterosexism in imposing all these assumptions about family structures and cultural grieving processes. That you know, three days is exactly what someone needs in a row. You know, we have Jewish colleagues who are sitting shiva. We have colleagues who have memorial service each six months. We have people hiking up mountains to pray in South Africa on various dates and, and moments, and we're imposing on them our bare minimum of mourning. And so my view is, you know, Maya Angelou style, people will remember how we made them feel. And so we really, really need to remember that in those moments, having an umbrella policy and the way we're looking and thinking about it is having two weeks per event. So there's no maximum number of times you can use it. Two weeks is a floor, not a ceiling. It's a minimum. And then there is discretion beyond that. And that two weeks can be completely spread out. So if the way that you mourn means yeah. you're traveling or you're doing something, but people cannot be on unpaid leave and have the burden of funding or financing a funeral, people cannot be proving immediate family relationships when they could live somewhere where their relationship is not legally recognized. Um, and actually, people should not, in a moment of you know trauma or pain, need to explain themselves to the company. We should trust them and give them mm-hmm. um, that grace and that space to kind of do what they need. And so that I'm really thinking about, I'm calling it compassionate leave. It has many words and names in many companies, but thinking about what that would mean to people underneath it and how it would best serve people across all of the different components we talked about around, you know, religion or sexual orientation, um, gender identity, etc. That's one.
0: I wanna ask so many questions, but I need to focus and I'm looking at the time and I'm also looking at the chat. so. There's a few questions, but I want to, this one came in first. How do we highlight to leaders the importance of listening and being in the moment with someone who shares their story and not just rushing to execute? Because you've been mentioning this, like this care, this listening as a model, but I love that. Like actually be in that moment with the person sharing that story and not rushing the story, but also rushing to execute.
1: First, make all your leaders read Kate Murphy's um, "You're Not Listening." (laughs) Good starting point so that people know what what real listening is. Putting that joke aside, it's something I was actually going to chat about with you um, in a bit. Sable from our prep call, but you know my answer. It is role play is definitely not what you were expecting me to say, Ira and, and Sable. But in my view, and stay with me here, empathy building. Right. Is helping leaders to understand where we were, where we're going, why it was causing harm, why, you know, what people are asking for is their experience. I think that it really, really helps um, to actually spend time. And I'll give you a couple examples here. So the first is when we were talking about mental health and well-being in our organization during COVID taking time to take quotes anonymously because not everybody wants to share their trauma with their name aligned to it to a leader. Having those quotes and having leaders go around and read them aloud and hold other people's words on their tongue and actually think about how do they feel that someone in their organization said that, feels that way, had that experience. And I think a lot of going through and kind of empathy building in that way really helped with Sometimes you have this assumption with leaders that they know how their people feel. They've heard it. They listen to people. They've seen the impact. Not everybody has psychological safety to speak to that leader. And so ED&I leaders often do a lot of the listening because there's a fear for other people. So I would say if that person is already talking to the leader directly, that's a great leap of faith for your organization, right? There is psychological safety. There's trust. And it's helping the leader to understand believing people's experiences, right? Listening actively, not jumping to problem solving, but in the event that they're missing the voices, which is very often in an organization, how do you bring those voices to the people that need to hear them most and help them to sit in silence? And you can create a space where you say, after we all read our quotes, we'll stay silent for three minutes. We will not respond. We will not react. We will not problem solve. And then the first thing we will say is one word about how this makes us feel. And keep people, right, in a space of actually reflective listening instead of reactive. And then on role play, going back to it, I think it's also putting together actors, actresses, scenarios where people can actually watch and engage live and seeing how some of these things are playing out in the workplace. How bias might be showing up in an interview process or something like that. And to actually watch and kind of try to interrogate and say, ooh, that's a moment where it came through or this is that. And I think actually having people see conversations, watch them with no, you know, go and solve it, is, is super, super important. Bit of a rambling answer there, but role modeling, role play,
0: <laughs> and
1: <laughs> listening.
0: I appreciate it. And we are over time, but last question. If you could have, and this is, we're no longer in Utopia. If you could have dinner with anyone, past or present, who's worked, you know, in the equity space, doesn't have to be in a workplace, okay? Just equity space in general. Who would it be? Oh, you?
1: Bell Hooks, one hundred percent, and very sadly recently passed. Um, and mm-hmm. so, for for many reasons. And then, second would be you, Sable.
0: <laughs> well, if enough. I can get, if I find myself. London, we can make that happen a little bit easier. Um, We might have to have the all turn some candles for bell hooks, but I do also think that's possible.
1: True. Sable, I know you want us to end, um, but I I wanted to ask you a question, which I did not tell you I was going to do, but I think when people listen to podcasts and when people, you know, people have just given us the gift of their time and they've listened to us and I think they haven't heard enough from you. And so I wanted to make a moment and give some space to as someone walks away, they take off their headphones, they stop listening to this podcast. If, if they continued and started or stopped doing you know one thing for equity, diversity, inclusion, mm-hmm. what would you ask of people?
0: Well, depending on where your you know energy levels and, and bandwidth and capacity has been, it might be continue to read or start to read again. I know some people have been ingesting books. This entire time, folks, if you're working from home, for those who have been working from home, and some folks are like, I can't get past the article, my brain, I just have no, um, I have no space. I say continue to read and sit with it. I don't believe, and as someone who started as an English literature teacher, I've (laughs) loved reading, apparently since I was three. I have like the first book I've ever read. It's duct taped and all. We shouldn't have a goal of 20 books a year, three books a month. I don't believe in that. I believe in taking your time with each book, annotating it, writing in the margins, underline, highlighting it, sitting with it, reading it over, journaling about it. How, how does that resonate with me? Who can I have a conversation with about it? Because when I think about inclusion equity work in general, everyone has a different why as to why they might be doing it and you know continuing and committing to it. but. Until you have an emotional connection, in tie to these communities that have been marginalized for an incredibly long time and often disempowered in different ways in different spaces, because power shows up differently, it's really, really hard to stay motivated. If you can't go this beyond, this is someone's child. Like this is dehumanizing. This is erasure. This is the lack of legitimacy, like they don't, the lack of legitimacy, so forth and so forth. So I think for me, it's continue to read and then explore who you're reading. What are the authors? What have we been told are classics and what have we been told are not worth our time? You know, what writers of color, what Asian writers, what Muslim writers, what black woman, what writers should we be disabled? Like what? what communities have we not explored And to really sit with that. So even if you only read, if you read three books a year, if you sat with that, that is so much richer and and eye-opening and understanding and getting nuance and new understanding and new perspectives that it will change your lens and your outlook and your thinking when these issues come across your table and you're thinking, you know, how do I change that? How do I address that? The answer is usually in the books which is why I forget the exact quote in this moment but it's by Malcolm X like if you want to hide something from people just put it in the book. And that's a true paraphrase. Please Google for the exact words. But the idea if you if you don't want people to know something throw it in the book. So a lot of these things these that we have you know these questions that we have the answers they're they're in the books. So it would be it would be continue to read. Lauren, you put me in a hot seat. I should have known you would have done this. (laughs) Well, I
1: I secretly wanted to know because I've learned so much from you and and from Fearless Futures. And I'm glad you have guests on your podcast. But one of the things I also loved about season one was just listening to your musings and and your thinking and a lot of the learning, same from your newsletter. So I think my action for everybody would be to engage more deeply with Fearless Futures and allow them to audit your work and really interrogate and think about um, what equity, diversity, and inclusion has historically meant to your organization, and what it could mean going forward if you were to do it differently, to take it more seriously, to elevate its importance, to give it power, um, to kind of hold more truths at the same time, <laughs> to be true in the work. So, yes, I know I'm probably not supposed to um, market for you, but and important. I
0: tell lauren to say that i promise you i did not tell lauren to say that but thank you lauren you've been far too kind generous with your time i hope you enjoy the rest of your day and i hope you will feel just as dewy on the outside as you can feel dewy on the inside
1: thank you thanks for listening